Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 11. This this miracle is simply called the cursing of the fig tree. And how did Jesus get here? Uh, Last we saw Jesus, he was in Jericho, and Jesus made his way to Jerusalem climbed up the Temple Mount to the Temple. And in Jerusalem, when he first arrived, they did what we call the Triumphal Entry, where everybody praised him, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and those sorts of things. And he rode in triumphantly into Jerusalem, and then he spent the rest of the day, which was Monday, teaching the people. Then he retired to Bethany, to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where he spent the evening, and it is now Tuesday. It is Tuesday. He comes back to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to the temple to clean out the temple. As they enter Jerusalem, they see a fig tree, and it says that Jesus was hungry, and he goes, and there's no figs. And so he curses it. Now this cursing of the fig tree is also in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, there is no cleansing of the temple. It is he cursed the fig tree and the fig tree withers right before their eyes. In Mark, they keep moving and they come back the next morning and it's withered. But we believe the withering of the fig tree in Mark was also very quick. They just didn't hang around to see it like they did in Matthew. And just because the cleaning out of the temple is not in Matthew doesn't mean that they didn't do it. Uh, John has the cleaning out of the temple early in Jesus's ministry. Mark has it late. We believe that there were at least two cleansing of the temples. I mean, why would the people stop their money-making operations just because a Firebrand came in and knocked over a few tables. Some commentators have actually uh, speculated that Jesus went every year around Passover and cleaned out the temple and they built it back up again. And so the fig tree, when we look at the miracle of the fig tree, it doesn't fit with the other miracles. There are some unique aspects of this miracle. First, it is the only destructive miracle in the Bible, in, uh, in the Gospels. It is the only time Jesus broke something. It's the only time Jesus destroyed something in a miraculous way. And the second part is, this miracle helps nobody. There's no compassion. There's no buddy who comes to a greater belief because the hand of God touched their life. There's no feeding. There's no miracle. There's no healing. There's no casting out. No people are involved. You have this 
this little tree minding its own business, and Jesus comes and curses it. Now there's, as we look at him arriving, starting in verse 12, it says on the following day, which means it's Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus knows that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, boom, he's on the cross. Okay, so Jesus is here for the last week of his earthly life before his resurrection. And he understands, he remembers, he knows all that he has done for the Jewish people. But it says that he was hungry, and most commentators say Jesus skipped breakfast. My guess is Jesus skipped breakfast a lot of the time because he was very busy. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, what is this passage trying to tell us? I don't know if you have a fig orchard, okay? When I was growing up, my grandmother in Redwood City had a fig tree. And if it had leaves, it had figs. You can look this up on the internet, how do fig trees work and all this kind of stuff. Every site will tell you if a fig tree has leaves, it has figs. The leaves and figs come at the same time. Now, figs have to grow and they have to develop. They start as buds and they start as little shoots and then they start to get bigger. And this is April-ish. You have Passover annually is around April. Sometimes it's late February, sometimes it's early March, but it's April-ish. And so this is Spring, this is April-ish during the time. Now, if you had a fig orchard, you would harvest and sell the figs early summer, around May, okay? Maybe June, depending on how you're doing. Out here in the desert climate, your, your figs get ready for harvest middle to late May. And so by the time Jesus gets to this tree... It would have the little immature figs. It would have the little shoots of figs. Now, they're edible. They aren't sweet. They're very fibrous. But they're edible, and Jesus could have gotten nutrition. Jesus is not going to starve to death. Jesus did not die of starvation. He died on a cross. And so the fact that he's hungry is just about an an excuse, if you will, of why he goes over to the fig tree. And so when it says it's not the season for figs, it's also telling us that you shouldn't have leaves that early, okay? So it's not necessarily saying that it should have figs but didn't. What it's saying is this fig tree is fooling us. This fig tree is a hypocrite because on the outside... It has leaves. It is saying, hey, come over here. I got figs. Look at my leaves. And if you've seen a fig tree, fig trees can get 30 feet tall. And they are shade trees. They can get huge. And they have those, you know, the classic fig leaf that is used to cover your nakedness if you're Adam and Eve. But the, they're very, lots of leaves. And they're shade trees. They are very densely leaved trees. 
And the idea is if you see a fig tree and it's just full of leaves, it's going to have at least the start of figs. It's going to have the little fig blossoms. It's going to have uh, figs that are beginning to go and you can pick those and chew on the fiber if you wish. They do have nutrition. They're just not juicy and they're not sweet in April. They will be in May. And so Jesus is reacting, we believe, to the fact that the tree is misrepresenting itself, that the tree is advertising figs and has none. And so what does this mean in the big picture? What does it mean why did Jesus curse this fig tree? Why is this in the Bible? Now, I read a variety of commentaries and articles to prepare for my sermon. I want to make sure that I don't preach stuff way out there, that it is at least the mainstream that I am preaching, because the meaning of this passage in the Bible has remained the same for 2,000 years. The meaning when Mark wrote this. And people say, well, he got input from Peter. Okay, when Mark and Peter wrote this, it meant something to Mark, to Peter, to the disciples. They read it and said, oh, this is what it means. That meaning is the same for 2,000 years. Now, the application, what I do about it, is different per generation. Each generation has a different movement, we can say, and may have a different application. But the meaning of this is the same today as it was when Mark wrote it. So what is the meaning? Every commentary and article and book I read on this said, what Jesus is doing here is cursing Israel. And you say, huh, how do you get that? Well, if you look in your Old Testament, many people have concordances. Concordances is a listing of every word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you look up fig tree, you will find over 50 references in the Old Testament where a fig tree is Israel, where God talks about pruning a fig tree, and he's talking about pruning Israel, where he talks about planting the fig tree by water and it growing. He's talking about Israel. Fig trees are an uh, allegory, a metaphor. They, it means Israel in the Old Testament. Now, some people have said, no, 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 you got to look between the lines. There's actually 75 or 80 times in the Old Testament where a fig tree or a fig represents Israel and Israel's fruit. So Mark, being raised in a Jewish community, being raised in synagogue, being raised where they read out loud the Old Testament, when he sees fig tree, he doesn't think fig tree, he thinks Israel. Okay? Following that, why did Jesus curse Israel? One way to look at it is this is the straw that broke the camel's back, the crucifixion that's coming in three days. He gave everything he had, everything he could do for the Jews. 
It is clear that he came to the Jew first and then the Gentile. The plan was Jesus comes to the Jews and then Paul mostly takes this message to the Gentiles after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus gave his, he spent his life, God gave everything he could to the Jewish people. The story in the Old Testament is God says, live this way. The Jews say, I'm not going to do it. God punishes them. They say, oh, I'm sorry. God says, live this way. They say, I'm not going to do it. God punishes them. They say, oh, I'm sorry. God says, live this way. They say, we're not going to do it. And that's it. That is the Old Testament and the Jewish people. It is clear. Every page of the Old Testament, God is very plain about what he wants. And it's clear that the Jewish people, not all of them, there's always a remnant that follows God, turn against him. And it culminates with the Assyrian army taking the northern kingdom away and Babylon taking the southern kingdom away. And the southern kingdom eventually came back. The northern kingdom never did. And so God is doing everything he can, making it as plain as can be. This is what I want. He created the Jewish people from Abraham. They are his creation. They're his special people. We call the Jews the chosen people because God made them. He created the nation by leading the people through everything. And what do they do when Jesus shows up to say, I'm going to tell you about what God wants, they say, we're going to kill you. And they eventually do. And Jesus knows that. And so God is done with giving Israel the answers. And Jesus shows that by cursing the fig tree. God is cursing Israel in this time. Then... Jesus goes to the temple, and he cleans the temple, and you say, how does this work? Here's a model. This is a model of Herod's temple. You see that tall thing in the middle? That's the Holy of Holies. That's where uh, you go and you do the annual sacrifice. The stuff on this side of it is where the uh, sacrifices are made, and the blood is poured out, and the altar that burns things. Those two things on either side are called the courts of the Gentiles. What the religious organization did, and evidence is very clear that it was the chief priest, Annas, who, and Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the main one against Jesus of the chief priest category. Annas was the high priest when Herod built this temple for the Jewish people. And what he did was he started renting out stalls on either side. That it was a, an organized pop-up sort of thing. He said, okay, you want to sell goats. You give me 200 denarii or whatever. And then they would go and they would sell goats. Now, around Passover... There are very strict rules about how 
blemish-free the doves can be and the sheep can be. And so the people who were selling in these outer courts, and you can see how big the area is. This was full. This was a full-blown marketplace where you had to weave through the people to get to the much smaller temple where you actually worshipped God. And so they would say, ah, your sheep's not good enough. You have to buy our sheep. And they said, okay, and they have a Roman coin. And they said, oh, you couldn't, can't use a Roman coin because it's blood money. We have to exchange a Roman coin for a temple coin. And, of course, the sheep were extremely expensive and the money changing was exorbitant and it was a time of extortion and great burdens on the people. People went and had a fantastic financial burden just to get to God. And so Jesus comes and he goes up to the court and he overturns the money changers and he knocks out the seats of those who are selling doves and he just cleans it all out and he says that this is, that the, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7 and says that my house should be a house of prayer. Now Isaiah 56, 7 stops there. Jesus adds, for all nations. Jesus is giving a, a, a what, a, a pre-telling, a uh, for, for what's going to come, that Christianity is going to be open to everybody, including all Gentiles, and that a house of prayer like this, you can have Jew and Gentile alike, you can have anybody come here and worship God. And so he cleans them out, and then his disciples say, hey, wait, that tree withered. Now, even if you cut down a 30-foot tree, it's going to be weeks until it turns all brown. Trees have a great ability, as you'll find out this Christmas, have a great ability to stay green even when they're dead. Okay? And so they were amazed. And then Jesus goes and gives them a statement of faith and says that this is what it's about. And Jesus gives um, an explanation of not only the miracle, but about how the future of Christianity is going to be. It is going to be a religion, a relationship of faith. And first he says, if anybody says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and you believe it will go. From whence I was a small boy reading passages like this, I realized then as I realize now, no one's ever done that. That this is an example of some impossible thing that nobody has ever done. Nobody has ever, and how do you know? Because if a mountain flies across the sky and lands in the sea, it's going to make the news. Even back when there was, you know, just word of mouth and gossip, people would have talked about it. There would have been legends. There is no legend of this happening. And so why not? What is Jesus saying? Well, if we remember that faith is a positive action in response to what you know. So if God tells you, tell that mountain to go throw itself into the sea and you believe him fully and completely with no doubt, 
and you tell that mountain to go fly into the sea, it will, because God's going to do it, because God just wants you to be the speaker of the miracle, not the doer of the miracle. And so two things are true then, one, you know, the other. God has never told anybody to do that, and I believe that's true. I believe this is an extreme example, but God has not done anything like that. The second is, God has told lots of people this, but nobody has the doubt-free doubt faith to do it. I am more inclined to the first part, that God doesn't want mountains to go flying around. Okay? Then he says, pray. Pray believing, and you will get what you pray for. This is not a formula what Jesus is saying in all of these things is doubt will destroy your faith. We can see faith and doubt on a continuum. If you have big faith, you have uh, small doubt. If you have big doubt, you have small faith. What Jesus is saying is don't doubt when you pray. When you pray, believe what you're praying for believe what you're asking for and I've I've looked at my own prayer and I've looked at doubt that I have praying for big things and I pray through them and I ask God to help fix my doubt and things of this nature but if you want to win the lottery which I don't think anybody has yet if you want to win the lottery and you're praying for it you got to not doubt you got to not think about Oh, well, this is going to happen, or that's going to happen, or this, that, you know, whatever. And if God tells you you're going to win the lottery, and therefore you should pray for it, then you're guaranteed. If it's your idea, then there's going to be a problem with your doubt, because we can't control God with our prayers. And then he ends with saying, so when you pray, forgive. If you hold unforgiveness in your heart, and you're praying for something, the indication from the New Testament is God's not going to hear you. Now, he'll hear you, but he won't do anything about it. That if you have unforgiveness, especially since Christ forgave on the cross, if you are holding unforgiveness, you are putting yourself in God's chair. You're putting yourself in God's place saying, I know what Christ did, but I'm withholding forgiveness from what, God, from what I'm praying for. And so he's saying, forgive people. So you're praying and God brings to your mind, you're holding a grudge against so-and-so. Stop. Take care of it. If taking care of it means calling them, call them. If taking care of it means pray a different way, you pray a different way. You take care of it. You forgive the people who have wronged you. Then God will hear your prayers and God will forgive you and God will answer your prayers. And I think one difficulty that Christians have today is that we want to pray our way. I want to pray for this, this, and this, but I'm going to keep this grudge or this unforgiveness or this hate or whatever for this individual who wronged me so much that I'm going to pray and God's not going to hear me. And if I, you know, I try and try and try and it seems God doesn't hear me, one question you have to ask yourself is, 
Do I have unforgiveness? Am I holding a grudge? And Jesus, throughout his whole life, came and said, God's over here. Come with me. I'll show you the way to God. I'll show you where God is. I'll show you what God's doing. I'll show you. I'll hold you by your hand. I'll make a path. He did everything to bring them along. And they said, we don't want it. And in fact, we're going to kill you, is what they said. Just curse them. And in our lives, we have to see where God is saying, come along. God is saying, do this. God is saying, go this way. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if we say no long enough, we will probably end up cursed by God. And those who are cursed by God in eternity are in hell. So it's easier when you're reading the Bible and you say, oh, God wants me to do this, to just do it rather than risk the God treating you like a fig tree and cursing you. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise you for this day. We praise you that you are a God of love, but you will not wait forever. You keep giving and giving and giving. And if we keep saying no, 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 eventually you will stop giving and it will all be done. Lord, we praise you for this and pray that we will be open to your leading in all that you do. And we ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.